Welcome to the Leading by History podcast, where we seek to take our listeners on a journey through history, highlighting information which is most crucial for changing our world, one episode at a time. Welcome back to another episode of the Leading by History vodcast and podcast. Uh, um, It's it's exciting times for us, uh, having switched over to having the video platform as well as the audio platform. Many of you have asked for this for quite some time, and so we're going to test it out, try it out, see how you like it. And uh, if it's something that the people want, then all power to the people. Um, we thank you for, for tuning in again. Um, in our last episode, we met with Dr. Gina Page from uh, African Ancestry, and we talked about the, the power of identity and the impact of identity. And today we're going to just talk a little bit and have an off-the-cuff conversation uh, with, with Dr. Mbili Shaka um, to discuss a little bit more about not just identity, but about the psychology of identity, uh, the power of of black beauty and uh, the the concept of of self and beauty. So we welcome to the show, Dr. Afia Mbilishaka. Welcome to Leading by History. Thank you, thank you. You said it in a very Akan Ashanti way. So thank you for that. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Well, you know, we're very thankful to have had uh, the opportunity to do that reveal and find out about my matrilineal line. My mother was definitely excited about that. And, um, you know, I have never been one to be um, like overly concerned about DNA, right? Because I've all, always believed that your identity um, is uh, almost like a self-created construct based upon your experiences. Uh, some of your DNA is tied into that, right? But at the same time, you know, um, we, we were made who we were and it is through our, our actions, our thoughts and our deeds that we become the people we desire to be. So in the beginning, I, I, I didn't know whether I wanted to go through with that or not, right? And then uh, I had some friends of mine, they were like, oh, it's gonna say Swedish or it's gonna, you know, it's gonna, <laughs> it's gonna be some strange things. And so, uh, you know, they were like, we're gonna revoke your black card, you know, whatever the case <laughs> may be. So, you know, I, I found it very, um, just really um, strengthening to really be able to, to pinpoint a location uh, for the matrilineal line um, in a culture that respects the the matriarchy, and to to see that you know that connection, and when Gina talked about this thinking about this one Akan Ashanti woman uh, who you know had offspring that stayed in the continent and others made mm-hmm. it across the middle passage, right? That means in me is the gene you know, pool of people who survive. So how can I complain, you know, mm-hmm. when, when, when it's because of them that I'm here? So that's our introduction into psychology. Now, I, I found out about you uh, 
um, from seeing you present at the Identity Summit with African ancestry. And I heard you saying some names that I hadn't heard since I was a kid, like, you know, Dr. Wade Nobles and Amos Wilson. And, you know, because I grew up in the movement, if you will. Mm -hmm. And so um, it just brought back so much. And I said, you know what? I just loved uh, the energy you brought to the conversation, the positivity, uh, the sincerity. And, and when I looked up your, um, your psychotherapy site, you know, it was just like, okay, I love what I see that, that she's doing. So I wanted to get you on the show. So again, welcome to the show, but I'm going to be quiet because I get, you know, excited and want to talk. Tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, where you studied, right? And, um, and how you got into what you call psychotherapy. Okay, great. Yeah, thank you for letting me talk about my identity. So so um, I definitely think our identities are connected to our life story. So so my life story uh, began in New York. I'm from Long Island, New York, um, mm. the youngest of four children. Both of my parents um, were educators. They're retired now. And so I basically grew up in the school environment. So yeah, my mom was an elementary school principal, so I'd go occasionally go to work with her and help her out, even as a kid, you know, after school. Um, and my dad actually is, um, or is retired now, but was a history professor. He actually started the African American Studies Department at his university and worked there for over 40 years. And so that's, that's a big part of understanding who I am, that I come from educators and was required to read a lot. Um, we always went to the library and did lots of summer programs. Um, all of my siblings are extremely high achieving. Uh, like my oldest brother went to Yale, my sister went mm. to Princeton. So we had this very uh, black nerd <laughs> culture in my home growing up. And so um, my experience um, was greatly shaped by being in these talented and gifted programs where I actually skipped the eighth grade, um, which wasn't good socially, but um, based on, I guess, the way that my mind worked, that they wanted to give me more challenging um, materials and courses. And so I went to college at the University of Pennsylvania. I thought I wanted to become a dentist. Um, but when I took all of my science and math classes, I hated them. Um, and it's interesting because when I think about why I hated those classes, it was really racist. Um, I can remember being in the biology lab and wanting to figure out how to use the machines, but my classmates, you know, I was the only black person in the class. My classmates would take the, the different instruments out of my hands, like, we'll do it. You don't have to touch anything. Um, and I felt so uh, <laughs> invalidated and um, uncomfortable. And so that impacted my motivation to want to go to class or study those materials when the professors and students, um, <laughs> I didn't really vibe with them. So that was my first semester in college. And actually the second semester in college, I told my friends, this is not a good move, but this is what I did. I said, you all just pick all my classes. I don't even know what I want to do anymore. Wow. Pick all my classes. 
And so they put me in a psychology class, intro to psychology, a sociology class, um, a black women in literature class, and maybe Spanish or something like that. Um, so I was in these classes and I realized I love the social sciences. I love figuring out how people think and I love studying culture. So ended up majoring in psychology, minoring in sociology and Afri Africana studies. And so based on my education at the University of Pennsylvania, I realized they oftentimes left out black people's contributions to psychology and um, would talk about these mental health disparities that you know black men are six times more likely to be diagnosed with schizophrenia than any other group, but there was never any explanation or connecting psychology with race and racism even. So I decided that I wanted to study black mental health. And so I thought the best place to do that would be Howard University. And so I ended up going to Howard and studied under great scholars um, like Dr. Harrell, who's known um, as being the most grounded and balanced uh, psychologist and person I've ever met. And so he wrote a really great book, Manishian Psychology. And he was the first person to introduce me to um, scholars like Dr. Francis Cress Welsing's work or you know, Dr. Noble's work. And a big part of my education too at Howard was getting connected to the Association of Black Psychologists. Mm -hmm. So all these people that I was reading for my coursework in Dr. Harrell's class, I got to actually meet um, at conferences and hear them present. And now, you know, I have their phone numbers and things like that right. to think that I'm like, I could call Wade Nobles right now, Dr. Right. Wade Nobles right now. Right. But in terms of um, that, it was clear that I was serious about studying. Um, and really wanting to heal my community. And so that shaped a lot of my experiences um, in terms of doing self-study, because <laughs> I don't, my husband critiques me sometimes. He was like, stop giving all your schools credit for what you've learned. You did that. Mm -hmm. So I, I definitely um, pursued uh, more training and study. Um, independent study myself. So that's kind of my, my educational experience, but even thinking about how I connect hair to psychology happened in college. So I was that girl who did people's hair in, their, in the dorm room, you know, they <laughs> had a little salon in the dorm room. And so um, I can remember talking to my aunt Brenda on the phone one day, she's now an ancestor, but telling her I had a dilemma, should I study psychology or should I study hair? And she said, well, why can't you do both? Mm. So I don't know if she meant for me to do both at the same exact time, but that's the way I interpreted it. I'm like, hmm, I can do therapy and hair together. And so it wasn't until after I got a PhD in clinical psychology that I went to hair school and really saw the hair salon and barbershop as a more authentic way to engage Black communities. And so... I've had the opportunity to actually do hair professionally, um, go to hair conferences and mm. share um, you know, the mental health piece because I do acknowledge that hair care professionals are really good therapists yes. um, from based on my observation. So they could use maybe more evidence-based approaches because maybe they don't know about Dr. Welsing or don't know about Dr. Nobles. And so I sort of introduce um, these, these theories or practices or techniques um, that align with what they're already doing, but going a little bit deeper. Mm. So that's how I got my journey <laughs> of doing this work. 
um, in my drive to really address the health and wellness of our community. Wow. And, you know, I love what your aunt, or as we would say down in, in Virginia, your auntie, I love, <laughs> I love what your auntie, what she, what she gave you in that and how you interpreted that. That's so interesting because, you know, I'm a, I'm a part-time, a side, a barber on the side. Right. Really? So in the midst of all the things I do, uh, you know, from from every part of education that I work in on the side, I'm, I'm chefing up the hair, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, making sure that people aligned right and appropriately. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, barbers are always told. Right. We know the black barbershop dynamic. Right. Like this is this is lived experience. Uh, somewhat anecdotal, but then there also seems to be some empirical evidence, but I don't know how much research has been done. This may be a, a PhD topic for some of my listeners, right? Some, some of you, you social uh, scientists to be, this may be something for you, but you know, the, the barber is always like, even traditionally, um, you know, having the barber swirl outside of of the location was a symbol of, you know, of, of practice for health, right? And so barbers would do bloodletting and, mm -hmm. you know, minor surgery and all of these kinds of things throughout the centuries. So, you know, a, a, when you think about therapy, you think about, you know, you know, for, for women, as I've frequented some salons with, with, with friends and family, Oh, girl, you know, such and such happened yesterday. And what do you think I'm going to do with this? Well, he told me, you know, and, you know, it's the same thing in the barbershop, you know. Uh, yeah, man, I'm, I'm dating this girl and, uh, and she's doing this, man. What do you think I should do? You know, those kind of personal things come out. And that is a part of therapy, you mm -hmm. know. And uh, Dr. Malik Muhammad, who wrote the book, The Restorative Journey, uh, mm -hmm. I had he and his wife on in season one, but but he made a powerful statement. He said that many times we are harmed in community, but we are also healed in community. Mm -hmm. We are healed in relationships. We can be harmed in community and harmed in relationships, but we are also healed, you know, in these relationships and in our communities as well. And you know, you think about the the role of the the hair care provider. It's like it's a part of the community when you, you don't just trust anybody with, you know what I'm saying, with your 360 waves. You know what I'm saying? You don't you don't tr just trust anybody with your lace front, you know, and your micro. You know what I'm saying? And so <laughs> so 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 it's like that is so powerful. So for you to have put those two together to come up with psychotherapy. That is just so catchy. And when I saw that, I said, yes, yes, we have to bring her to the stage to talk about the work. So what would you define or how would you explain identity? Mm. If someone were to ask you, like, what is identity? How would you explain that? Yeah, I, I think identity is about answering the question, who am I? Right. So we can use different roles that we're in, maybe a wife or a professor, but we can also identify different experiences that we've been through, um, such as educational or family um, and even who you think you will be in the future. 
um, I hope that I will be an amazing elder or, and then even further ancestor, but um, to even think about how you exist in the past, present and the future. Um, so of course your, your name being central to that, right? I definitely think in our names um, is inscribed our identity, mm. um, you know, what we answer to. And mm. so my name, Afia, actually means health if we look at it from the, the Kiswahili version. So every time someone's calling my name, they're reminding me of who I am, mm. right? That I need to be a healer, but also um, like, like your ancestry, the, the name of Fia also is Ghanaian um, and means Friday born. And just thinking about the energy or the deities of Fridays um, and what's supposed to come with that. So I, I think that that sometimes our names can be the basis of it, but, but our daily practices can define us, right? In terms of our identities. I think that um, our passions, <laughs> our actions, um are all part of it identity is complex so it's it's hard yes. to to give it no no you're, you're doing well no you're, you're giving yeah. us a lot and I, I love when you said you know our name is a part of our identity and then you you put in there right um parenthetically what we answer to yeah so you know b's and h's right in ends, right? And, and 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 thugs and gangsters, right? Like so it's like what you answer to becomes a part of your identity. Yeah. And 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 you know, so as a as a, a practicer of uh African Hebrewism, right? As as some would would, would dub it, um the name is extremely important. And, mm -hmm. you know, when my name is said Maseyahu, it, you know, it's, it's a servant or a minister of Yah, you know, the, the almighty. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, it's a reminder that, you know, you are more than just the average individual. You've been given a name and this name mm -hmm is calling you to be something and to do something. And so that's why th there's power in that statement that what you answer to is part of your identity. I never thought of it in those terms. You know, we know it internally, but you 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 verbalized it, right? To to say that what you answer to is a part of your identity. And so if we answer to those epithets, right? And to those mm -hmm. uh, you know, those those evil and um, maligning names and attributes, we are accepting that as who we are. And what it is that you accept, you become, you embody, you promote, right? And you reproduce. Mm. And so this is, uh, that's a just so powerful. That's why I really believe that when people begin to awaken, um, you know, I, I don't, you know, the various traditions that exist throughout Africa, but when you awaken, you know, people tend to have an elder give them a name or they may take a name and it represents something um, very powerful and esteeming, 
Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's just, just powerful to think of because I was always taught from the time I was a child that a name means the character of the individual. So your name is tied to your character. It's tied to your personhood. And so when we say it's tied to the identity, I, lo- I just love how you said what we answer to because the power of the tongue, right? And what we call into being. That's just so much there. I don't want to. I don't want to keep going and going. But yeah. well, now now you need to learn some Akan tree. That's um, right. right. So that you can speak, <laughs> Without speak the question. language of your ancestors, yes. right? Yes. So it, it has some challenging um, pronunciations, right? We have to get what, rid of this Westernized tongue. Yes. But to even think about what your name could have been, and right. you know, an easy way based on the the Shanti or Akan tradition is the the day name, right? Everybody in that tradition has a name associated with the day of the week you were born. Do you know what day of the week you were born? You know what? I can't even recall. I need to go back <laughs> and check the birth certificate. I can't even recall. You know, I, I just don't yeah. even remember. Yeah, I'm gonna have to go check that out. I don't know. But I do know that in uh, in West African tradition, like what is it like Kwame means like Saturday child or, you know, Saturday baby or things of that nature, right? So yeah, yeah. without question. Yeah. <laughs> you okay. could be you could be a Friday born like me and you'd be Kofi. Right. So to even think about about what the, the names would evoke for you um, now that you know your your ancestry. So I always think that that's a a grounding experience. Um, and even thinking too, when I, I got my um, African ancestry results that I found out I was um, from the house of people of Nigeria. Mm. And so then I started looking at how they dressed. I started looking at the foods they ate. I started looking at the hairstyles um, to even see, um, you know, who I was connected with right. um, on the continent. No, that's, 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 so, that's so great, so powerful um, to just think about, you know, just the, just the power and, and, and why it was, so entrenched into the mind and the psyche of the colonizer, right? And the imperialist to rob us of our names because in doing so, you are also robbing us of our identities. And if we don't know where we come from, then as the old proverb says, we don't know where we're going, right? the old landmark has been displaced. And now, you know, as I heard a, a 5%er say, you know, 9,000 miles is a long way to swim. In other words, getting all the way back to the continent, right? We got to swim 9,000 miles to be able to get back home. And mm-hmm. so, you know, um, it, it allows us to see uh, how important it is for us to have an identity. So, to tap into your areas of expertise, I want you to talk to us about the concepts and ideas of beauty, right? As it's tied to Africanness. Um, what have been your experiences just as a practitioner of being African in the Americas, right? And then coming into an awakening. Uh, of some sort. I mean, maybe you've been in an awakening for most of your life, but at some point you accepted, you know, a certain understanding, right? And path 
just talk to me about how the concepts of beauty and the and 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 hair and skin and all of that just talk talk to me about whatever you want to say concerning those matters just just go ahead and 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 just lay it on us go ahead okay okay well this is a complicated topic too but but i can start from a very simple entry point i think that um we get rewarded in most societies for looking good right mm. whether it is traditional african societies or you know modern american societies that people want to look good because it's a position of priv privilege. Maybe it can speak to your wealth or it can speak to your family lineage on a genetic level. But um, it's interesting how that drive to want to look good is shaped by culture. Mm. Because in one culture, looking good can be one way. <laughs> in another, it can mean something else. But overall, I do think that our beauty and appearance are associated with our wellness um, in terms of what you're eating, how much water you had for the day, if you're getting rest, right? If you're exercising, that the body will um, present that information um, in terms of how clear your skin is or um, how moisturized your hair is, that, that our, we can often use our appearance to gauge what's going on inside of the body. But um, unfortunately, one of the things that, that colonization, slavery, racism has done is has misoriented a lot of Black people um, into valuing um, things that are anti-Black. Yeah. Um, in terms of there, there are lots of Western beauty ideals and myths, right, in terms of having light skin being beautiful or having straight hair is being beautiful or long hair is being beautiful or thinness is being attractive. Or, um, that is all a system um, to control our behavior so that if you think looking good means that you have to have a long blonde weave, mm -hmm. that there's money behind that, right? Knowing that hair care industry to get a long blonde weave Right. It's going to be a lot of money. Mm -hmm. So, so um, as Dr. Amos Wilson talks about, it's <sighs> capitalism benefits when we are out of our minds, mm. right? Um, and if we valued the way that our hair grew out of our heads or, you know, the way that our body composition looked and how to care for it, then there wouldn't be a multi-billion dollar hair care industry or beauty industry because people would invest more in their health and rather than on products mm. or um, on straightening tools or chemicals um, mm. that alter um, the hair from its natural authentic state to one that's mimicking um, an unrealistic advertised norm. Because even when we look at the, the magazines or the movies, those people don't even look like that. It's all <laughs> right. No, it's true. Yeah. Um, that, you know, the models say, I don't even look like that. I don't know who that is. They did so much airbrushing or had yeah. so many filters that that's not how I even look. So I think that, that there is this sort of carrot that is presented to a lot of people, and especially women, as mm. you know, women tend to be valued more on their appearance. Mm. Um, 
to say, if you can achieve this, then you'll have a better life. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's I, not necessarily no, I love, true. <laughs> I, I, I know I love what you're bringing out. I mean, keep keep talking because you're, you're, you're hitting some some real you know, key things there. No, no, please. That that's, that's extremely important. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I have a lab really been studying the psychology of hair. Uh Oh, did did I lose you? We got to freeze real quick, but we're back. Go ahead. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. I have a psychology research lab where I study the psychology of hair, the psychology of beauty, the psychology of race, and even how they all interact. So even a study that I had that came out um, how little some black women are willing to exercise because they do not want to mess up their hair. Mm. And so I think that's a really interesting phenomenon. They'd rather Mm. have hypertension, diabetes, heart issues, all these things, um, you know, that can be preventable through exercise and a, you know, nutrient rich diet but they want to look good. Um, they see that as more of an investment wow. uh, of time, of money. And so I think it speaks to the conditioning process, how we, you know, we place value on, on our appearance again versus um, other areas. And so that, that would actually relate to um, Dr. Joy DeGruy in terms of post-traumatic slave syndrome. Yes. Where, where she argues that one of the consequences of slavery is vacant self-esteem. So vacant self-esteem, meaning that we'll value our clothes more than our, how, what books we've read or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. And so that, that um, it's really internalized, that, that process of, of feeling devalued and then trying to, to outwardly show that you have value. Mm-hmm. Um, but even in her book too, Post-Traumatic Slave Syndrome, she even talks about um, racist socialization, right? I don't know about you. Tell, tell me if you remember this in school. On picture day, they used to give these really tiny combs um, that they say you could fix your hair um, before the picture. I don't know whose hair could get through those little combs, but even you know that can be a sense of racist socialization that there you are, thinking you're looking cute, they hand you this comb saying to fix yourself with this comb that you can't even use. Um, And then you might feel some sort of way. Um, So to even think about these things that are are embedded into um, school children or things like that, where where we question our value or had to experience straight up lies that our teachers would tell us about where we're from or what we should be doing. So I think that all gets, gets you know, mixed together. Um, yeah, and some of my other studies, uh, identifying families, unfortunately, is perpetuating some of these um, white supremacist ideologies onto their own children based on how they look. Because I have studies of grandmothers, of mothers, of aunties, right? As you said, I should say, of aunties um, criticizing children mm. based on their appearance calling their hair nappy and ugly, right. calling, you know, yeah. talking about why is their nose like that and their lips and they're too dark. Like families actually will become agents of perpetuating these westernized and white standards of appearance um, that have been internalized. So, so it's, it's interesting to dig up um, 
these unfortunately common experiences wow. that that a lot of black people have around their appearance and beauty and I actually had to create a term to quantify like this this experience I kept seeing coming up I call it aesthetic trauma mm. that there are points um where people are so harshly criticized about their physical appearance that it can be internalized and actually be like a physical trauma almost as if they were assaulted physically that the pain of rejection from family or friends or classmates or teachers um, actually can last someone's entire life because I do this storytelling method of even like 70 year olds recalling at five years old that you know someone made fun of their hair and it's and they never wanted to wear it in that style again so mm -hmm. these are very long-term um, consequences so it, it, it's deep. no, this, this is something like I'm sitting thinking and listening to what you're saying and you're so hitting so much of it. I mean, it's, it's not like this is groundbreaking information, right? Like we, we experience and live this, but I think to hear someone sort of quantify the, the ideas and experiences in, in with an academic mind, right? Mm -hmm. Like. In, in, in other words, we see these things, we experience these things, but this is just something that's a little different. When you yeah. are able to now do research and to be able to have validity to these hunches and to this anecdotal information, you know, to, to be able to have uh, pockets of empirical evidence that these things are negatively affecting us. And so again, it's not so much that it's it's groundbreaking, but it's the fact that we're still here in mm. this state because people have been talking about this for decades, right? Like you're building your research, right? Yeah. Off of things <laughs> that came from the 2000s, the 90s, the 80s, the 70s, the 60s. Mm -hmm. And yet we are still here talking about nappy hair and dark skin versus light skin and all of these kinds of things. And it's like, this is the way that you were made. This is the way that your hair grows. And I always, you know, it's it's something because I always have this this uh, this joke with friends of mine, you know, because we always love our blackness and our brownness, right? Mm -hmm. And um, and so I remember growing up, we were always as a lighter skinned individual, we were always fighting over who was darker. <laughs> and, you know, like, because we right. wanted to be darker. So we would put our arms up and we'd be like, no, I got you. I got you. I'm, I got you. I'm a little dark, right? Like we wanted to be dark skinned. So the environment that I was raised in, the dark skinned people were always tougher, right? Mm -hmm. uh, the dark skinned people were the alpha males in many instances or perceived that way. Um, there was a fear, you know, but not in a negative sense, but a respect or a reverence for the dark skin. And I guess me growing up as a kid, being in the midst of a bunch of five percenters, you know, I was taught that blackness was godness, right? Mm. You know, I heard that from a young age. So it's like, you know, melanin and the third eye and the pineal gland, like this is stuff I'm talking about 10, 11 years old, you're hearing these things, you know, we have seven and a half ounces of brain, you know, brain cell tissue and, you know, we, the, the dominant, and so it's like, it's, it's so funny because we, we would say, 
that most of the leaders of, of many of the movements, the black movements, were always light-skinned brothers. Mm -hmm. And it's and it's because there seems to be this psychology that there has to be a compensation for mm -hmm. the the perceived dilution of the race or the 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 count of, of melanin that has to be made up, you know, with with with, with the action. So when you start mm -hmm. thinking about Farad Muhammad, Elijah Muhammad, Farrakhan, Huey P. Newton, right? When you start going, Malcolm, right? Malcolm, right? <laughs> you go down the line, it's like all of these were lighter skinned brothers, but it's almost like they carried the weight of, of blackness, right? Because the perception was, if you were light skinned, you were weaker, mm -hmm. uh, they would call you red bone yellow whatever the case now i didn't have that experience gladly I, I that's not that's not anything i remember growing up because that just wasn't my circle you know i mean we we were taught 16 shades of the, of, of the black man right so we you know so the, the 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 thing here is you know it's like wow it almost works in a reverse because it's like there are people who are feeling less than because of their darker skin or because of their hair which is more curly, right? Tightly curled, mm -hmm. as the as as the scholars have said in our community, right? Tightly curled. Um, that that many have felt bad because they have they fit the Hottentot or the mm -hmm. the Venus of Willendorf type of you know uh, uh, framing, right? Of 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 beauty. Where on the other hand. The light-skinned brothers and sisters are feeling less than in their blackness, feeling mm -hmm. alienated, feeling that they have to go the extra mile. You know, and we think about even the history of Nat Turner, gonna get in trouble with some of y'all out here, but I'm a historian, I got to let it be known. We paint pictures of Nat Turner as this dark-skinned brother, but according mm -hmm. to the primary and secondary source information, they said that the band that he was leading, they said there was a white man that was leading him. Remember, he was said to have been the son of the enslaver. He was a light-skinned man and so light that some said that they thought that he was white. Now that's that's in, in the records right now. Uh, some people are gonna be mad at that, but, but the point is that when you start thinking about these things, it's like, man, it, it almost like it, it turned this whole um, psychology of black being negative or less than or inferior, it, it like was flipped on its head because those who fit that portrayal felt less than, but then those who didn't felt less than. So they just had us jacked up on both sides of the spectrum. Exactly. exactly. I mean, that's- <laughs> Have us out of our minds, right? Wow. Making us out of our minds. Wow, wow. And. And that ties into what we talk about in the soundness of thinking. Um, you know, when you think about balance and harmony, right, and those principles that occur throughout African, you know, traditional systems of spirituality and understanding and philosophy, is that balance and harmony are so key, right, into the African and Eastern uh, ethos. Um, and so it's like, the entire experience of enslavement literally drove us crazy, put us out of balance, out of harmony, into disunity, created divisiveness, 
an inability to love and to show true concern. And here we are, as Gina said, in the 401st year of documented enslavement in this land, and we're still fighting the same battle. Mm. Someone said to me the other day, um, there are still people who don't have knowledge of self. Mm. There are still people today who have no idea that there were black people in the Bible, black people mm -hmm. in the Quran, right? Black people in the Torah, uh, uh, that there were black people in ancient civilization, that there were ancient African civilizations that were the, were the ground floor, right? Foundation for the Greeks and the Romans and therefore America and England. There are still people who have no idea. Mm -hmm. That is a loss of identity that's grave. You know, I, I'm going to get off my Harlem stepladder, but I tell you, this is, <laughs> this is it's something to think about with identity. And, and when I think about what you do with hair and what you do with beauty and what you do with helping people to accept being natural, it's so important. And as you said, I, I just kept thinking about that blonde wig you know, mm -hmm. that blonde Malaysian, you know? <laughs> and, and I'm just thinking about how much that goes for and how you mm -hmm. have to pay a pretty penny for that, you know? And, and man, I know people who have been in the modeling industry, in the entertainment industry, and you are so right. Like much of it is so fake, it's so false. And, and wow, like, you know, I'm sorry, but I'm just thinking about the destruction of a people. Mm. Yeah, just... and an intentional destruction, right? Yes. Because even for Dr. Wade Nobles in, in 1986, he was really pushing the idea of scientific colonialism, mm. um, where there's an intentional control of knowledge and information wow. for political means. Right, that people are intentionally not told or taught Black history, mm. right? Because it would reshape the power structure and dynamic mm. to think about these origin stories coming from African people. Everything, language, science, math, all of everything, right? The story begins in Africa. And for people to recognize how far advanced. We are, and, and, and I think a big thing is when we think about slavery, it's often the sort of uh, victimhood, like, well, they were picked up and forced to work. No, African people were chosen because they were experts, right? And your ancestors that were in Ghana were experts in so many different fields that they were stolen and forced to you know, labor. And, and, and so just to even think about whether it was people who had expertise in architecture or people who had expertise in rice growing, right? right. Or expertise in science and math right. um, and medicine that our ancestors were strategically That's it. taken from specific locations yes. because yes. Of, we were experts. And I think that that is the biggest thing I hope people take mm -hmm. away from studying history and especially slavery is to recognize that that we had more skills and talents and understanding. Mm -hmm. And that's that's how we were exploited, not because mm -hmm. we couldn't 
figure things out or we needed to have a boss, but we experts, right? No, experts. I love that. I love that. Again, I love how you verbalize it because again, we, I know this internally, right? But to hear you saying it, it just brings it alive because it's so true. I was just reading more on this this week. I can't recall where. And it was like, as you're talking, this is coming back into my mind that, the, you know, African people were skilled craftsmen and women and, you know, were skilled farmers and, you know, artisans and, and that whole piece. And, and as you said, there were specific locations and places and people who were chosen uh, for the express purpose before mm. it got sloppy, mm. right? Before it got sloppy and the Europeans didn't even realize that there were specific uh, ethnic groups that were being targeted by other Africans, right? Because we, 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 we had some of our own people working in the process, right? Like that, that's just the truth. But after a while, it went beyond the humanity and it became sloppy. And mm -hmm. where it might have been, we want you to pick up the group of people that are around this River Niger here, right? And, and this is a location where we will have, you know, the bounty of, of enslaved persons that you desire. After a while, the demand became so great that they were just snatching up everyone. And so king's children, queen's children, mm -hmm. princes, princesses were being snatched up. And when you read uh, Luda Equiano's uh, e events, which, which some Europeans said, oh, it was a farce. Uh, he wasn't truly from Africa or whatever the case may be they tried to say in that day. Uh, he tells the story of the Middle Passage. He tells the story of how he got caught up in the mix being the son of a leader. And so mm -hmm. if we can in, in, imagine and have record of free uh, Africans in America being taken and sold down south when their papers were ripped up, right? Mm -hmm. And there was no FedEx Kinkos to be able to have a couple copies stashed on the side. And it cost, you know, uh, a couple hundred dollars to be able to come across one of these papers, right? And then you have an enslaver say, oh, well, I don't know what you're talking about and rip your paperwork up and ship you downstream. If we know that these things happened, then why would we think that it would be incredible for the children of kings and queens and 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 skip? See, this enslavement was a mess, and it is a tarnish on the soul of America that America has to confront and has to deal with. Identity is so powerful. Oh, we could just go on for hours with this conversation. I mean, I'm telling you, it is just it's so much and. I, I, my my desire and my hope is that our listeners, right, some of which may be professors, some are students studying to be historians, professors, some are classroom K-12 teachers, right, and some are just folk that just want to learn about history. I hope that what, what they all take away today is the understanding of, of what identity is, what things are tied to our identity, our, our music, our choice of clothing, but most importantly, our names, what we answer to, right? Uh, our ways of life, um, you know, our looks, our skin, our hair, this is all a part of our identity. And 
there was a determined and strategic effort, as you said, to erase that, mm -hmm. to destroy that, because mm -hmm. it was known that once these people, hundreds of years from now, figure out exactly who they are, then we are in big, big trouble. Mm. Because the drums again will begin to beat, the, 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 the cow and bull and, and, and ram horns will be blown to call the people to arms. And this war uh, that ensues, it doesn't have to be one just ideological or one in the physical, but I'm gonna tell you, Every single day that we teach, that you go and you work and help people work through their psychology of, of identity and love, every hair that you, every head of hair you do, right? Every time you listen to, to one of your clients, every time I chef a head up and, and I get told something, I impart wisdom, that is warfare mm -hmm. against the strategically created um, design made to snatch our identities. We are changing it one head at a time, one braid at a time, one temp fade at a time. Mm. We are in war, right? And mm. to, to overthrow the shackles of a lost identity. So powerful. Um, Dr. Mbilishaka, I have enjoyed, I, and, and you know, <laughs> some, of my, some of my listeners, they say, you know, Man, you get to go and let the guests talk. You know, <laughs> I just I get so uh, impassioned with you know with with this content uh, because it's so important. It's so mm -hmm. important. We just don't realize the number that's been done. What What are your closing words? What's your charge to the audience today? What do you want to leave us with thinking about with respect to identity? and the part that they must play in reclaiming that. I, I think I just wanna, wanna leave the, the words of the, the great um, psychiatrist, Franz Fanon, mm. um, as he talked about identity, to, to constantly be answering the questions of who am I? Am I who I say I am? Am I all I ought to be? Mm. And so clearly we need to lean into our history to be able to answer those questions and almost project into our futures for how we would like to answer those questions. So, so that's what I'd like to leave people with and that, that answering those questions are certainly connected to your mental health. Dr. Billy Shaka, I thank you so much for being with us today. Fascinating conversation, so invigorating continue to do the good work that you're doing and helping people in the way that you are uh, with psychotherapy. It will now be a phraseology, right? As a part of, yes. of, of, of my, my normative language now. And um, from, from those of us at Leading by History, we say to you, peace. Thank you for tuning in to the Leading by History podcast. We look forward to getting back with you again. Until then, keep a leveled head and always investigate the sources. Peace.